All right, church, I, I hope you will go ahead and begin making your way to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, that's where we're headed. I said in the first service that no matter... Hang on, I'm bad at multitasking. I've got to get the Matthew myself here. That no matter how good my exposition may be today, some of you will remember more than anything that God's church will not be thwarted by cows and John Deere tractors. And so that is okay. Let me uh, go ahead and just begin by going to the Lord's throne and uh, asking for his help this morning. All right, let's do that. Father, I do, again, just thank you for this opportunity. Lord, to be among your people. To be this morning with brothers and sisters that, though many of them we had never met until now, Lord, they are family. I rejoice in that. I rejoice in the building of your church, the establishing of your kingdom, and Lord, that nothing will thwart it. Father, I pray that as your hand has been upon this place for decades, Lord, that you'd be so gracious this morning as to pour out your spirit in abundance, that we might experience that, that we might be a people of your presence, that, that Lord, we offer that to this city to come and experience the presence of God Almighty. And may they see that, may they tangibly sense that as they walk among us. Father, we ask that, and we know that we can't supply that. We cannot do that apart from you and your help. So, Father, I pray you'd be gracious again this morning. Lord, we love you and we need you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, I hope you've made your way to Matthew chapter 16. I'll give us a little bit of context before we get started, because we are picking up here in the middle of this book, chapter 16, and Matthew, much like all of the other inspired biblical authors, they, they write with purpose. They have a particular reason in what they're writing and how they're pinning what, what they're putting down. And one of the main themes that, that Matthew is addressing, something he really wants to get across to his reader, is the identity of Jesus. Who, who is this man? Who, who is he? And as we approach chapter 16, it's going to move from an implicit reality that we're confronted with as we read in the chapters ahead, or the chapters, well, actually, prior to this, if we were to walk through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we'd be confronted with these realities, who this man is. But as we get to chapter 16, it's, it's very explicit. There's no getting around it anymore. The question is asked, who is he? And so we're confronted, and we have to answer this question this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in, verse 13, and we'll take this a verse at a time this morning. Look with me. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is not a, a small thing and something to quickly read over. We ought to make little notes in our mind when the biblical authors give us these shifts and these changes in setting. So most of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, up until this point, had been taking place in and around Galilee, kind of the northern region, predominantly Jewish. And now, all of a sudden... He's venturing out, he's taking his disciples, and they're going into Caesarea Philippi, a predominantly pagan area, full of idolatry, pagan worship, home of uh, the, the center of worship for the pagan god Pan. And he's taking them there, I believe, for a reason, and we'll see that in just a few moments. But as he gets there, th this is the location where he poses this question, where he gets explicit in asking. He says this, 
later in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, of course. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now he's asking this not so much for his own benefit, because he knows what people think, what their hearts are. But to get the disciples thinking here. So they begin to respond. They say in verse 14, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Of course, all of these events that had taken place prior, feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000, various people being healed. The crowds were comfortable very much affirming this man is a, at least a prophet, right? All of these identities fall under that banner. John the Baptist, there's some confusion there, probably among Herod. Remember, Herod had John beheaded. And, and I really think, I said in, in the first service, I don't, I don't think... Um, I, I, I think Herod uh, really liked John the Baptist, although he had that, that done. Um, and he really wanted Jesus to be John the Baptist, brought back, right? So there's some confusion there uh, from Herod on his part, wanting Jesus to be John the Baptist. Elijah, there was an expectation that Elijah would come back as a predecessor to the Messiah. Jeremiah, Maybe the tone of Jesus' message was much like this Old Testament prophet, how he was criticized by the religious elites. They were all very comfortable saying he's at least a prophet. Church, if we go out today on the street, and I, I'm encouraged because I, I've learned that this church often goes out together and shares, evangelizes. But as you do that, I'm sure you're confronted with Many impressions people have about Jesus. You have those conversations. You say, who do you say that he is? And many may say, well, he's a historical figure, nice guy, good teacher, maybe someone we should model our lives after. Some may even say he, he's a prophet. I mean, there's over a billion Muslims that would make that very affirmation, right? Saying, yeah, he, he's a prophet. But what Jesus does next, he takes this broad question that he's asked about all the people out here and he brings it in a very personal way and says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say? Now, I will say the, the you here is plural, which in the part of North America where I'm from, we, we kind of, I'm sure I don't have an accent. None of you guys have picked up on that at this point. But... We have a phrase called y'all. It's a plural you. This would be an appropriate place for the y'all to come in. Who do y'all say that, he, that I am, right? So he asked this question very personally. And I love Simon Peter, right? I mean, he's just exuberant and zealous, and sometimes he gets in trouble because he acts irrationally, and he jumps out of the boat and gets his knees wet, and later he's going to take a sword and start whacking ears off. And just, he, he's just that kind of guy, right? But what does he say? Verse 16 says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now before we unpack that, what response does that garner from Jesus? What does Jesus say about that response? Because that's totally different from what everybody out there is saying from what all the crowds had been saying, his esteeming him as a prophet. This is different now. This is next level, right? What does Jesus say? Verse 17, he says, Blessed are you. 
blessed. Essentially, Peter, you got it right. You were right. I, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. This Jesus is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the one who all of Israel had looked towards the expectation of this messianic king that would come and ascend the throne of David to never relinquish it, to be a redeemer, to be a restorer. And, and they understood this. He's not just a prophet. He's more than that. He's not the one who's just setting the stage for, but He is the one that is expected to come. He says, you are the Son of the living God. Now, they understood that to be not just from God, but of God, proceeding from the Father, that He's the second person of the Trinity. They, they, they understood that. And I, I think we can see that if we back up into chapter 12. You go back to that event where Peter's been out on the water, you know, and he's nice and wet. They get him back in the boat. What do they do? They worship Him. They worship. If Jesus isn't God, then that is blasphemous. That is utter idolatry. So do they believe and know that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God? He is indeed God? Yeah. That's a loaded statement from Peter. And he got it right. Now did Peter come to that on his own intellect? His own understanding, his deductive reasoning of circumstances and, and what have you? No. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He didn't understand it on his own. The Father gave him eyes to see Ears to hear, a heart to understand. And church, I, I just want to encourage you this morning. I, I don't know where you are spiritually. I, I don't know what baggage you may be carrying spiritually in, into this place this morning. Maybe your spiritual walk right now is, is just so vibrant and you feel so close and commune with God often. Or maybe you're coming in here this morning saying, you know, I... I feel really distant. I feel kind of disconnected. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but I just I feel out of touch. And friend, I, I just want to remind you this morning that if you follow Jesus, if you're His, you didn't do that on your own. He did that. He's performed that work in your life. That's the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life this morning. And what... He began, He will bring to completion. So whatever hardship you might be struggling with right now, just be encouraged. God's at work in your life. He has been and He'll continue to be. So maybe you don't sense it right now. But persevere. Endure. Remember the work that He's done. That He gave you eyes to see. That Jesus is indeed the Christ. The Son of the living God. Now, as we continue, look with me in verse 18. We're going to linger here for a few moments. And I know that verse 18 has been a source of contention among Catholics and Protestants for, for ages. In fact, as Kathleen and I uh, were preparing to come, and uh, she was asking me last week, she said, you know, wh where do you feel like the Lord's leading you to share? What, what text? And I shared, and she kind of thought for a minute, and she said, are you sure about that, Seth? You, 
You sure about that, husband? That, for your, your first sermon? You, you know that Brazil's the largest Catholic nation in the world? Like, are you, you sure you wanted to? Yeah, honey, I, I think that's where the Lord wants us, okay? So, so here we go. But my, my ambition is not to resolve that debate. We're just going to look at what the Lord says here, right? Okay, so verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter. So Peter had made this proclamation to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in like fashion, Jesus now looks back and responds and says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now we know there's a word play here because Peter's name means stone or rock, and grammatically, metaphorically, it makes the most sense that he's just going to build his church and do that upon Peter here, okay? Now I think it's okay to say that and comfortably live in that because we have other texts in the Bible, we don't have to take it beyond that. But when we have places of ambiguity, it's best to always look to other texts and see if they resolve that. Well, if we were to move over, I'll just flip quickly here. If we were to go to Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. I'm going to back up into verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. So I, I think what Jesus is conveying here and that we can safely rest and reside in is that the apostles, the prophets, they had a particular place in redemptive history. A particular purpose and role that was distinct from mine and yours. I often quote Acts 2 at Chapel Grove uh, Acts 2, describing the early church there in Jerusalem, how they were about the apostles' teachings, about the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Those are all four things we're very um, passionate about. But I never quote it back and say, hey, we're about Seth Barkley's teachings and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Why? Because the apostles have a particular authority and role. So they have a role that is distinct from mine and from yours. And so I think we're, we're safe here. I think, I think we can rest in that and see that. But Peter's not the main focus of this verse. He's passive. He's totally passive here. It's Jesus who's saying, I also say to you. And then he goes on to say, I will build my church. I will build it. Who, who is that I? Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. The one who, if we go to chapter 28, what do we see? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If we were to back up, that's one thing Matthew does so strategically. Is if we were to look through Jesus' public ministry, we'd just see occasion after occasion after occasion of His authority being on display. His authority is on display when He walks on the water. It's on display when He heals the leper. It's on display when He forgives sin. It's on display when He raises a dead child. That's the one who's making this statement. The one who has all authority and He says, I will build my church. And notice the possessive. It's His church. It's not my church. It's, it's the Lord Jesus' church. And as a, a pastor, I'm so encouraged by that reality that it doesn't all rest on me. Right? The Lord Jesus does that. Now, do I have a certain stewardship role? Absolutely. But Paul says, one plants and another waters, but God gives the growth. Jesus 
is building His church. And He's passionate about that. He goes on to say this, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So He's building this, and no darkness, no evil, no opposition will overcome it. Certainly it means that. No less than that. But I think there's more here in the context. Remember I mentioned the setting a few moments ago and how Jesus seemingly strangely takes His disciples to this pagan city, to Caesarea Philippi? Here's what I think is happening here. Caesarea Philippi, again, it's a, a place of worship for pagan gods, one in particular, the pagan god Pan. And there's a, a site of worship at the base of Mount Hermon. And there's these giant pools. And off of the mountain comes streams of water. And it goes into these pools and it, it goes up and there's iridescence. And it's just kind of a mystical place somewhere that would be very appealing to go and perform acts of worship to pagan gods and the name of that site is the Gates of Hades. You can look it up. I encourage you to. You can Google it. Just not right now, okay? But it's there. You can go visit. I think what Jesus is doing here, He's got His disciples and probably a few others. Not the big crowds that have been with Him there in Galilee. But they've gathered here. And I think in the distance, in the foreground, is this site of pagan worship where People by the hundreds and the thousands flock to worship. And the Lord Jesus has given an object lesson saying, Alright guys, you see this over here, what's happening? I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades, this over here, it will not last. It won't endure. What I'm building will be sustained. It will persevere. And this won't. Whatever the world puts forward, it won't last but my church will endure forever i think that's what he's doing and church we we can see that if we just zoom out just a little bit we if we were to jump over and to survey the book of acts i love the book of acts you see peter preach his first sermon out of the book of joel which is pretty hardcore right three thousand people come to faith the church begins to get established and expand and it moves to antioch from there into Asia Minor, and then so forth and so on. And it spreads all across the Roman Empire, so much so that it's reliably reported that by the year 350 A.D., over 30 million people confessed Jesus as King. And it just keeps growing and growing. We, we have testimony even here today. The fact that, and I assume this is right, I Googled it, right? I, Google's not my main source of of uh, reference but in this case it was the distance from Jerusalem to here 10,000 kilometers something like that it's pretty far right Jesus says go to Jerusalem Judea Samaria to the ends of the earth he's going to establish his kingdom even in the ends of the earth and here we are today 2,000 years later 10,000 kilometers away and it's his church present and how many gates of Hades have perished since this. The Lord is establishing His church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Church, I hope you're encouraged by that. Here's what I want to do. I want to ask two questions. 
The first is this. I, I don't know your history individually. You may be a visitor this morning. I'm a visitor too, okay? So I, I, I don't know hardly any of you, right? So you may have come in. This literally might be your first occasion ever being in here. Mine too, all right? But I don't know where you are spiritually. And I just simply want to ask this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? It, it is the most important question you will ever be asked. And the response you give will be the most consequential response you will ever give in your entire life. Because this Jesus came and gave His life as a ransom for many, Matthew goes on to say. He lived a perfect life, died a death on a cross that was meant for me and you. And by His blood there is forgiveness. If you'll receive Him today, if you'll accept Him, confess Him as Lord, follow Him, submit under His Lordship, He will cleanse you. And you can stand before a holy God, perfect and clean. So I want to invite you to that. Now, maybe you're a believer here this morning. Maybe you've been connected here at Calvary for decades. Praise God for that. My question is, do you love the Lord's church the way that He loves it? Now, I know we, we never will love it as perfectly as Him, right? We walk in imperfect obedience. Our obedience is faulted. But are you passionate about the Lord's church? Are you committed to it? Do you love it? Or are you trying to walk a Christian life that's somewhat disconnected from it? I, I, I shared earlier in America in particular, in North America, United States, I often encounter people who say, man, I really love Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm not real big on the church. I attend. I do this. But I really love Jesus, not so much as church. To, to which I respond. If, if you were to come to me and say, Seth, we, we are best friends. We are buddy-buddy. Let's go get coffee after church, which I would be for. That's good, Right? But you then said, but I really can't stand your wife. You think we'd be friends? No, like we're, we're not good. You're not my buddy. We're not buddy-buddy here. If you and I are close, you're close with my wife as well. It's the same way with Jesus and his church. If you confess your love for Jesus, you ought to love his bride as well. You ought to. And so this morning, I just want us to examine our hearts. Do we, do we love the Lord's church? Do we love His bride? Are we committed to it? To see God use it as a means to expand the kingdom, to make manifest the glories of God? I hope we are. Now, church, this morning, I, I know that we're also going to have a time of communion. So this morning looks a little different than some of our normal Sundays, I say our, um, I don't say that presumptuously at all, it's just uh, we're together, faith family, I enjoy that, wherever I go. But here's what I want to do, I, I want to just for a moment address communion, because we'll have a time of invitation here in just a second, I, I just want us to examine our hearts, okay? Reflect on this, what God may be saying to you through this text, but also prepare for communion, because when we think about communion, there's, there's two distinct realities or purposes here that Paul talks about if we were to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, one, it's to proclaim Christ's death until He comes. 
So we proclaim the death of Jesus and look towards His second coming. And also it's an occasion whereby we examine our hearts to make sure there's no unconfessed sin that we've not dealt with. Maybe something going on in our lives. We, we don't come to the table bearing sin in our own hearts begrudgingly. Maybe you have an alt with your brother or sister. No, this, this is the occasion where you address that. That you can enter into communion rightly. So I want us to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to pray. And then I think we'll just have a moment. And you guys can, I hope and pray, be obedient to whatever the Spirit's asking of you this morning. Maybe it's to come to faith. Maybe it's to have a renewed commitment to the bride of Christ. Maybe it's to go to a brother or sister on the other side of this room and resolve some tension that you might have before you go to the Lord's table. I want to pray for us, and you be obedient with what God's asking you to do this morning. Let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this occasion, and I thank you that your word is sharp. Lord, that it cuts. And Lord, what I'm asking this morning is that, Lord, it, it not cut so as to wound and kill, but Lord, you might use it as a, a surgeon would use a scalpel to remove a, a cancer or a tumor, to bring about healing, to, to, to bring about resolve and restore. And Lord, I pray that you might do that by your grace. Father, we love you and we need you. Lord, bring to mind any, Lord, any hidden sin in our lives that may be unconfessed, that we might approach your throne rightly. Lord, we love you and we need you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.